Amen. Thank you so very much. Good morning. We're going to ask you now to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 20, which fits in so naturally, you see, with what we've just experienced over the course of these minutes where we've honored veterans, because in many ways, this is a veterans-type passage. This is a militaristic passage. Let me tell you a little bit about what we're seeing here in that this is now the first of five kingship psalms, Psalms 20 through Psalm 24. The pinnacle of these five kingship psalms is Psalm 22, which we'll explore next week, where you will find Christ on the cross with that placard over his head, King of the Jews, while he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Five kingship psalms. Now, what we've also noticed is that there are two double doors that we're utilizing for entrance into the Psalms. The first double door was Psalms 1 and 2, where you have a Torah Psalm and you have a Messianic Psalm that are tied together. Couple that now with the second double doors of Psalm 18 and 19, where again you have a Torah Psalm and a Messianic Psalm. Double doors that now allow you to enter into the first of five kingship psalms. And what we see here now is that evidently Israel is under siege. There is some form of military invasion taking place. My hunch is that we're dealing with the Philistines and that the evil one is attempting now to accomplish this purpose. He knows that Jesus Christ is of the line of David. If they can conquer David and battle. If David dies, the messianic plan dies, and there's no Jesus. Thus, you will see this continual approach where the evil one is attempting to cut off the line of promise that leads to Jesus Christ. This is no exception. So now what we see here is a psalm that is enriched by the teachings of First and Second Samuel in particular. All of this now serves as the basis by which we are to begin to understand what we're dealing with in terms of this, these nine verses of a military strategy. You're going to notice with me that this is now to the choir master in your superscription. It's a psalm of David. And this psalm depicts David in prayer before an extraordinary battle is about to unfold. Notice seven maze that begin to unfold before us. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Now for our musicians at this point, the next word off to the side reads Selah. If you are using a musical score, this would be your rest in the midst of the measure. In other words, all the instruments now pause. In other words, what God is now saying is that I want you to pause here. I want you to reflect upon what's penned before you proceed all the more with what's now offered. You pick it up. And in verse 4, he continues, May he grant you your heart's desire 
This is the congregation of Israel praying, interceding for David, their commander-in-chief. And fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. In the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. At this point now, what we find is that the congregation of Israel concludes, and now David, in a sense of connectedness with the other Israelites, begins to pray as he is about to enter into battle. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. The Hebrew word for anointed there is Messiah. In the Newer Testament, the word would be Christ. So we're talking about the Christ line. We're talking about the Messiah line. So he says again, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He's got this promise. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Now the finale. And notice how he bookends and how he ends with the same terminology as to how he began, where he ends with, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. When at the very beginning he had prayed, they had prayed, may the Lord answer you. He ends, may he answer us. And now you sense the connectedness when you're seeking answers from God in the midst of what we will call this morning the day of trouble as we look to our Lord now in prayer. So Father, what we want to do is to explore this extraordinary passage of Scripture together to gain a better understanding as to what it is that you want to teach us. Because in one way, one shape, one form, we all experience times in life that we might dub our day or our days of trouble. For some, they might be looking back over the past few years, and that's how they would phrase it. For others, it's a right now experience, and they gotta find their way out, and they're looking for answers. Thank you that three times you used the word answer in this psalm because many are looking for answers in these services for those watching online. So Father, now these moments are important because they once again deal with real living and we want to be able to equip each and every person each and every week with the necessary tools to live well before you. Warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. As again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and, and him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at the painting that appears on the screen. This is a well-known, famous painting by Arnold Freiburg. And it's based on the account of many witnesses, eyewitnesses, 
and it's been entitled The Prayer at Valley Forge. Mr. Freiburg painted this with such extraordinary, accurate attention to detail down to the buttons of General Washington's uniform. It was painted for the America's Bicentennial and recognized by the U.S. Congress, Valley Forge. Now, the history teachers of the prior service, the service, those that are watching online, uh, you would be quick to remind us of some of the details and the issues that Washington was facing at this particular point in time. Because things were not going well for the general. He lost two battles in Pennsylvania, one at Brandywine, the other at Germantown. And furthermore, England's Sir Billy Howe had captured Philadelphia. That meant Congress, Congress, now meeting in the State House we call today Independence Hall, they had to flee. 19, excuse me, 1777. Fall turns to winter. How is comfortable? He's warm. He's partying with his, with his uh, upper echelon leaders in Philadelphia. Meanwhile, here's Washington, 18 miles away, mind you, where he and Lafayette, Baron von Steuben, and the American military at this point are enduring the cold and the conditions that are nothing short of miserable. What's interesting, furthermore, is that Washington had brought his army to a place called Valley Forge, and it's been named for a nearby iron foundry. Though the foundry was now in ruins, the British had destroyed it. But it was a good site, you see, for a military venture. Good site for keeping an eye out on the British troops. But there's no buildings there. And it's December, and now the ground is covered with snow. The men have marched a long distance. And now they're pitching tents and starting to build huts of sticks and logs, mud plaster. And what we're going to find is that with the troops, without shoes, so many of them, toes froze, left bloody tracks, hungers descending upon the troops, diseases moving across the camp. No battles were fought at Valley Forge. None. But you see, something astounding happened there. There seemed to be a, a spirit within the troops that began to develop and intensify. They would make it through this winter. They would become stronger. They would become more confident. They would become increasingly determined, they representing their country. Washington chose to live among the troops, not apart from, in a tent in the midst of the cold. And a young Frenchman who was there penned these words regarding his concept of a great leader. I could not keep my eyes off that imposing countenance. A 
quiet, strong dignity about this man. It's prominent expression through which you could trace the strong feelings of the patriot. You could discern the father in him as well as the commander of his soldiers. Captures the attention. Freiburg captures the scene. And if you've ever had opportunity to be able to go to Mount Vernon, I've been there, what you will find is that there is this laying of the public wreath ceremony where a prayer penned by George Washington is read aloud each day. You'll see it there in the other side of the screen where Washington had written, Now I now make it my earnest prayer that God would have the United States in his holy protection, that he would incline the hearts of the citizens to cultivate a spirit of subordination and obedience to the government, to entertain a brotherly affection and love for one another, for their fellow citizens of the United States at large, and particularly for their brethren who have served in the field. He'd been there. And finally, that he would graciously be pleased to dispose us all to do justice, love mercy, to demean ourselves with their charity, humility, and pacific temper of mind, which were the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed faith, without an humble imitation of those whose example in these things, these things, we can never hope to be a happy nation. Amen. You hear that read at Mount Vernon. And as you ponder this portrait, and as you reflect upon those words in the laying of the wreath, maybe you start to make connections. Because what we find here now is that the Israelites are seeing their commander-in-chief about to go into battle. He is the one they are putting their faith and trust in to oversee this victory while lifting their eyes upward, heavenly, towards the ultimate source of victory, the sovereign God. What I want to do with you is to explore, if you will, on this whole idea of the day of trouble. Where not once, not twice, but three times you're going to find this, this sense of need to be able to seek out answers from God. And what I want to say this morning is that when we are seeking answers from God, we need to be claiming the promises of God. While seeking answers from God, first claim the promises of God, because then you will find a greater sense of perspective as to how to pray to your God. There are three encouragements that I see now in this passage of nine verses I want to draw out for battle-weary people this morning. Let's dig in. And the first comes out of verse 1 through 5, that when you and I, when we're seeking answers in our, in your, in the day of trouble, 
I want to begin this morning by noting with you the model of prayer God provides for us. Now, look at all the various usages of the word may in these five verses that start the psalm. What the psalmist is doing at this point is that he is calling out for the blessing of God upon their commander-in-chief. Because as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. They are inextricably linked together. The one who is given the promise that through him would come Messiah. And the ones that are putting their faith and trust in the ultimate one still to come through David, Messiah, you and I know as Jesus Christ. So now we find seven maze in the five verses that are being brought before God when they are seeking now for God's answer. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Notice with me that they don't use the general G-O-D here, but rather it is capital L-O-R-D because this is the covenantal relational name for God at this point. So what they're saying is that we are appealing to the relational God of this universe who is sovereign and in control now to look out for our king because he is representing us and as goes the king, so goes the citizenry. Everybody is linked together in this intercessory prayer. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. So evidently now, there is a possible invasion being described here. There is a defensive war that's probably going to be enacted here. I was thinking about that when I, this week, was again, as I do on a daily basis, quickly checking out the Jerusalem Post and other Middle Eastern sites, news, and so forth, where Israel is watching very carefully uh, the, their upper echelon of leadership as Iran is continuously developing its usage of uranium, and they assume that this has something to do with a future militaristic attack. And so, all systems go, preparations being made, and they are prepared for that day of trouble. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Now, you ask me at this point, Gary, why is he referred to as the God of Jacob? Well, Jacob had received a promise from God. He's of the line of the promise that leads to David and through David to Jesus. And what fascinates me about a promise that was given to Jacob Abraham, Jacob, and so forth. Isaac, Jacob. Then we are told in Genesis 35 of verse 3, as Jacob looks out over his clan, mobilizes them for action, let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress. Same terminology. What they are now doing is that they are allowing the past to encourage them in their preparations in the present. What I want to be able to say this morning is take all the ways in which God intervened in your past, where you sensed God's presence in the midst of your day of trouble, take that now and link it into your present experience 
remind yourself that God is sovereign and life circumstances are not. You've got to be able to link now the God of Jacob to your life, the God of Jacob to the God of David, and see how all of this begins to fit together. It's now David is using the past to encourage his spirit in the present, as should you and as should I, in our own challenges day in, day out. And furthermore, notice that it is the name, it is made the name of the God of Jacob. Protect you. The name. There is no other name. You remember the story. Helen Keller never had opportunity to go to church during her early childhood because they lacked the proper resources to be able to minister to her needs. She could not hear. She could not speak. And she could not see. And she didn't learn the story of Jesus until she was taken to a great pastor in that time period whose name was Phillips Brooks. I've read some of his messages. Where this great pastor told her in the most simple language possible of how God sent Jesus into this world to die for her sins. Annie Sullivan, the interpreter for Miss Keller, tells us that the face of Miss Keller lit up as she spelled into the hands of her interpreter these words, quote, I knew all the time there must be one like him, but I did not know his name, unquote. Now, what the believer has is the tremendous opportunity to go to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ through the workings of the Holy Spirit, the three-in-one approach. The exclusive means. So now, what we are seeing is the equipping of the person who is facing the day of trouble, and now you begin to take the maze, link them together. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you because you look into the past and allow the past to guide you in the present. But now you're up to verse 2. And still another may leaps out in front of you and where we're told, may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. And if you've been to Israel, you know how significant this is at this point, Mount Zion. It seems as though all the false religions of the world had their, had their gods, false gods, on various mounts, such as Mount Olympus, if you've ever been to Greece. Well, here is Mount Zion. And what we find at this point is that it's there where the resources are to be had, the sanctuary. Your support is coming from Zion. Now, what you and I have to do then is to ask, where am I looking for support in my time of need in the midst of what I might describe this morning as my day of trouble? And you might want to look for the ultimate example where on the cross of Jesus Christ, Look for the way in which there's interaction between Jesus Christ and God the Father on that cross in Jesus' day of trouble. This serves as a model. 
Notice how he used scripture in the midst of his prayers to God the Father. <coughs> now, here we find that help is coming, support is offered, it's coming from that setting that God had established, the Zion, and it is there where the Ark of the Covenant had been brought. And the Ark of the Covenant, throughout all the battles of the Old Testament, represented the presence of God so that they might find success in the midst of the battles that they faced. They're drawing the presence of God into this prayer. And now, and now, they continue on. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt offerings taking from Leviticus chapter 1 of verse 4, where burnt offerings were necessary, you see, in preparation for entering into battle because the troops were then acknowledging they're not sovereign and, and their resources here militaristically and their, and, their, and their weaponry. No, God is sovereign. He is their commander-in-chief. So the offerings are given, made to God and what I'm saying at this point, when you see the burnt offerings, this is the means of preparation God was utilizing for them to be able to be victorious. Preparation. And you need to be prepared for the battles of life. The Israelites know something about that. My mind goes back, maybe you can recall this, those of you that were around then. In July 3rd, 1976, Extraordinary scene. The Israelis launched this successful strike on the Entebbe, Uganda airport. They rescued 103 hostages taken prisoner by pro-Palestinian guerrillas who had been given safe haven by the dictator back then of Uganda, Idi Amin. And by the time the one-hour operation ended, 20 to 40 Ugandan troops were killed. All seven hijackers dead. Only one Israeli soldier in this operation died. His last name, Netanyahu. The brother of the future prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. How did the Israelites prepare for such an effective maneuver? Here's the thing. What the Israelites had done was to build in the desert a physical model to scale of the entirety of the Entebbe airport. Which was easy for them to do because Israeli engineers had designed the airport. Now, commandos then practiced landings and takeoffs, landings and takeoffs, as well as simulated assaults in mock-up after mock-up after mock-up, so that through this intensive preparation, by the time they arrived in Uganda for the real thing, they had what I will call here this morning this extraordinarily keen spatial and experiential sense of the place that allowed them to perform like natives. 
What I want to say is that when we biblically prepare for the days of trouble, just as Jesus in Gethsemane or on that cross, when we biblically prepare for the days of trouble, we are going to have such a sense, if you and I might put it, of keen and spatial and experiential understanding of the place God places us in, we're going to perform like natives. We know what to do because we are equipped with the scriptures, with an understanding of the way in which God works, with the conviction that God is sovereign and circumstances are not, and you demonstrate a form of faith and trust that others just simply marvel at, you see. Now at this point, you need to say la. It's there in your verse. Now you can't say la forever, you know. This is a rest, but rest is meant to be temporary and not permanent in the midst of the battles of life. This is a selah in the matter of the day of trouble. And so now, in subsequent generations, because this was written for the choir master, future Israelis who continuously feel threatened by the circumstances of life and what takes place in the Middle East, turn to verses such as this, particularly the opening verses, they get to the Selah, and God, in essence, is saying, take a deep breath, rest in faith in your relationship to God through Messiah Jesus. Then re-enter into the battle, because we're not meant to be exempt from the battles of life. In this fallen world, we continuously re-enter into the battles of life, but the victory belongs to God. And so now, you've selahed with me. You're up now to verse 4. And this appeal continues to be made where another may leaps out of the pages. May he, speaking of your sovereign God, grant you, speaking of King David, your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. And now, leaders understand the necessary responsibilities of preparing well and planning well. They are not impulsive people. I would say as you equip yourself to be a more effective leader, understand the difference, make a distinction between what I'll call impulsiveness and responsiveness. Impulsiveness and responsiveness. If we're prone towards impulsiveness, it's because we're pressured from the circumstances from without. But if we're driven by a sense of readiness, if we're driven by a sense, you see, of responsiveness to the need, we're not driven by externals, but by the internals that come through the workings of the Holy Spirit. Are you more prone towards impulsiveness or is there a sense of responsiveness to the needs of others? Are you driven by externals or governed by internals? Impulsive or responsive? David equips the leader to do it well. May he grant 
your heart's desire, King David. Fulfill all your plans. And now you and I are up to verse 5, aren't we? And when we get to verse 5, may we shout for joy over your salvation. Why is this so significant? I had said that Psalms 18 and 19 were your second set of double doors preparing the way, you see, for five kingship psalms. In Psalm 18, verse 50, God in his arrangement of these psalms ends that psalm with these words, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love, Hebrew word hesed, to his anointed, Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah, to David and his offspring, mark this, forever. And so when the ultimate offspring is on the cross, where it reads, King of the Jews, of course we need a resurrection, a three days later statement of forever. God has already guaranteed it. He has established it. We're prepared for it. You drink it up. You take it in. We shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. And now for the second time, you're able to spot the usage of the word name as it relates to our God. But you say, Gary, uh, what's this about banners? What's that all about? Well, you see, when the Israelites were about to go into battle, each tribe was to lift their banner up so they could be distinguished from the other tribes. And you will read about that when it comes to the way in which they would encamp. We're in Numbers chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard, with the banners of their fathers' houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side, which is where the Ark of the Covenant, you see, the presence of God was to be known now. You set all that up. They've lifted their banners. They're ready for battle. May the Lord fulfill your petitions. And now you've spotted seven maze, the repetition of the usage of the word name, the use of the idea of save salvation, you're up now to the second encouragement. We're out of verses 6 through 8. Second of all, when seeking answers in the day of trouble, we've noted the model of prayer God provides for us in 1 through 5, haven't we? But now in 6 through 8, note furthermore the emphasis upon trust God desires within us. And now look for the idea of trust. Now I know. It doesn't say, and now I'm, I'm hoping. Or now I'm thinking, or maybe. Now I know, sense the certainty, that the Lord saves his anointed. They can look back generation by generation. They are able to say that God saved his anointed plan, where when Cain killed Abel, God raised up another to continue this plan, this promise that leads to Messiah. When Pharaoh attempted to kill off the baby boys, 
a pro-life movement takes hold, and then you will find the midwives standing up to Pharaoh and delivering these baby boys, because out of this means will come the future Messiah, Jesus Christ. Generation by generation by generation, courageous people used by God as part and parcel of fulfilling this plan. Now I know, as battles about to ensue, the Lord saves his anointed, the Hebrew word, the Lord saves his Messiah. In other words, David is the carrier of the promise of the messianic plan that leads to the ultimate Messiah that you and I know as Jesus Christ. Therefore, he will answer him. There's that word again. You began with it in verse 1. He will answer him from his holy heaven and with the saving might of his right hand. And now I want you to see the contrast. This is brilliant. They're looking at this impending invasion. David is saying this, their commander in chief. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. He goes uppercase when most governments stick with lowercase, even with the military. But here's the thing. When you see the word chariots, your mind goes back to that extraordinary scene in the book of Exodus. The Israelites are making their way out of Egypt and they're being chased down by the military forces of the Egyptians, aren't they? But they've just offered their sacrifice. They have offered before God now, with blood upon the doorposts, the offerings before God, the sacrificial lambs, pointing to the ultimate sacrificial lamb. And now, and now as they made their way towards the wilderness, and here's this Red Sea before them, and they're wondering how we are going to make it, are we all going to die, and is this promise about to be nullified? God breaks in and parts the waters and leads them into the wilderness. I came to the swift raging sea, and the roar held the echo of fear. O oh Lord, give me wings to fly over if you are, as you promised, quite near. But he said, trust the grace I'm giving. All pervasive, sufficient for you. Take my hand. We'll face this together. But my plan is not over, but through. And when you're wondering how you're going to cross that sea, it's not over, it's not around, it's through. He's sovereign. The model of prayer God provides for us leads to the emphasis upon trust God desires within us. 
that thirdly now points to the request for answers God anticipates from us. You ever wonder sometimes whether or not you've become so repetitious and crying out to God in prayer that you're wondering, am I troubling him too much? I mean, is this worth it to keep bringing up the same subject again and again and again? Did you notice that this psalm brings up the same subject again and again and again as a statement of trust? Because you now bookend this. How did it begin? May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. How does it end? O Lord God, save the king. Protect him. Because you and I know it's through this king will come the ultimate king, Jesus Christ. May he answer us when we call. And God is not caught off guard when you get repetitious, when you restate or repeat. The request for answers God anticipates from us. I thought about that. There is a man who owns a restaurant in America. He has a large collection of memorabilia. It's connected to the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. The Duke of Windsor would have been king of England. Gave it up to marry the Duchess. Plans had been made for his coronation. But the plans fell apart. Never happened. Compare that to God's plan. It stays together. And that's why we're able to pray for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Let's stand together. And when Jesus was raised from the grave, for thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever. So now, Father, you have equipped us for the days of trouble. You have resourced us for the battles of life. For the one watching right now, or for one who has already heard this teaching from a prior service, for those participating in the service. If there's any, Father, that are so overwhelmed at this point by the day of trouble, minister to them at their point of need. For the one who gets real and says, I really don't know this promised one who is victorious over the grave. I pray now that he or she will put faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ who faced the day of trouble, died on that cross, and then rose from the grave. And for all who know you, all who love you, we're here to multiply committed followers for you. May we take this plan of victory, use it in such a way that brings glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.